in his book, How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People, Pete Gregg uh, writes these words. The greatest person who ever lived was preeminently a man of prayer. Before launching out in public ministry, he fasted more than a month in the wilderness. Before choosing his 12 disciples, he prayed all night. When he heard the devastating news that his cousin John had been executed, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. After feeding 5,000 people, he was understandably tired, but his response was to climb to a mountain and pray. When pressures of fame threatened to crush him, Jesus prayed. When he was faced facing his own death in the Garden of Gethsemane, bleeding with fear and failed by his friends, he prayed. In even those unimaginable hours of physical and spiritual torment on the cross, Jesus cried out to the one who had apparently forsaken him. Jesus prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. It's prayer that is the privilege that we have that It gives us the opportunity to commune with God. It's where we hear and we discern God's voice in our lives. It's where we most keenly have the privilege of sensing his love and his presence with us. Jesus, I would remind you, said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now the reality is, um, if I'm honest, I'm certainly not an expert. I'm on a journey, I think like all of us, to try to understand prayer more deeply, to try to, to try to have more meaningful times and seasons of prayer in my own life. I want to learn. I want to find depth in uh, my walk with Christ. I want to, to, I want to, I want to, to, to find that deeper place with him. And, and even though prayer is not some magic bullet, it is a part of what it takes to find that deeper place. And so over the next few weeks as we begin this series, Conversations with God, I want to invite you with me to seek after, to pursue that deeper place, that deeper place that Jesus modeled for us. He did it himself, and he calls us to that place of prayer and a hunger for it. Now, i a lot of times try to give you some resources that are helpful to you that can help beyond what we talk about on Sunday morning. And so I would just hold up this book that I mentioned earlier, Pete Gregg uh, wrote. It's been super helpful to me, How to Pray, a guide for normal people. And I'm a normal person, so that was, it's been really helpful for me. I, uh, talked, we talked to Lorraine at the Christian bookstore just down the road, uh, Parable Bookstore, and they ordered in some extra copies. So if you want to go, they should have some copies. I always like to support our local uh, Christian bookstore. And so I'd encourage you to get, get a copy yourself. There's another book that was helpful to me in this past year, Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools by Tyler Station. It's like a year anniversary of that book's release, and I think it's on sale right now. So that's another uh, great uh, help. There's a podcast that he did uh, with some people that you'll probably recognize their names uh, and so it's, again, that's just a great resource. I encourage you to, to check that out. And I would just finally say something that I think is a resource that you should avail yourself to is the prayer and worship night that comes this Saturday, as we mentioned earlier in this room, as we come together and pray and seek the Lord and have a chance to worship Him. All as we think about what it looks like to seek after that deeper place with Christ. 
Tyler Station in that book that I referred to talks about, he writes about how we tend to be content in the knee-deep water of the Christian life. We discover in, at the knee-deep level of the Christian life that all the water is fine and, and, and we just tend to stop there. We tend not to go deeper. We don't, we don't jump headlong into those deeper waters, the depths of the divine intimacy that Jesus won for us in his life and his death and his resurrection. I would love for this series to be something that helps all of us to discover the deeper end of the pool. We're going to start our journey this week looking at a portion of Scripture that we often kind of look past to get to the, the, what you might say are the, the funner parts of the story. But in Exodus 2, um, there's a story where God's people cry out to him, where we see those cries turn into our omnipotent God moving on their behalf, freeing them from the slavery that they uh, have been a part of. We see it talk about how God remembers his covenant with them, we, how he hears their cry, he hears their groaning, and he moves in miraculous ways. Again, one of those passages we might skip over in order to get to the, what seems like the fun parts about the plagues and the Red Sea crossings and some of those things. Let me give you some background as you turn to Exodus chapter 2. We'll be in verse 23 through 25. But as you're turning there, let me give you a little background of what's going, going on. Moses was born as a Hebrew in Egypt during a time when his people were slaves. Pharaoh, feeling that the Hebrews, the Jews as a group, were growing too powerful and too large, decided that he's going to keep them in check by having all of the male children killed when they're born going to the midwives and, and telling them to kill the male children. You might, you might remember the story. We don't have time to get into it, but the story where Moses' mother puts him in a basket to save his life and puts it in the Nile, and, and, and the basket is discovered by the Pharaoh's daughter. And so Moses is raised as a member of not just any family, but the, the, the Pharaoh's family. And so if you think about that, how that would have perfectly placed him to be in a, in a space where he could have been very influential helping the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, uh, as they are in slavery. As we fast forward again, his people are languishing in slavery. And uh, there was a, an occasion where there was an uh, Egyptian was bothering or, or was, was, was hurting a Hebrew. And so uh, Moses comes to the aid of the Hebrew, his brother, and, and he kills the Egyptian. He thinks it's a secret, but the word gets out, and so he afraid, is afraid of what's going to happen. And so he's now on the run, and he runs to, out into the wilderness, runs away, far away, ends up meeting a girl, uh, settles down in Midian, and he spends the next 40 years away from Egypt in the wilderness. And during that time, things do not get better for the Jewish people in captivity, in slavery, in Egypt. Listen to how Scripture describes it, those years, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. During those many years. And that little phrase is describing the 40 years that Moses has left Egypt. He's living out in the wilderness, and it gets worse while he's gone. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. It was the pharaoh that was was in charge when he killed the Egyptian. And so now maybe he's going to have a chance to go back. 
And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The Pharaoh that had put Moses on the most wanted list, uh, he's died, and now, again, Moses has a chance because God's going to call him to go back. He has a chance to go back. And as I said, the pain and the suffering of his people has only intensified. It's only gotten worse during these intervening years, these 40 years that he's been away. The children of Israel have for the last 400 years lived in Egypt as slaves. And now it was the beginning as they cry out and they groan before God that would set a series of events in motion that would eventually free them. Their chains would be broken. Their bondage, would they be freed from that bondage and they'd be able to finally, eventually get to the promised land back in Israel. But it would take a miracle. In fact, it would take a series of miracles. Anybody believe that God still is in the business of doing miracles? I heard a story this morning that got me excited about how God still moves in life, still answers prayer, still does the miraculous. That's our God. And so as, as a result of God's people crying out, groaning before him, we see a great move of his people in prayer seeking him, and then God moves. To remind you of the quote that I, I know I irritate you because I say it so often, but it's so it's been so powerful in my own life, and it's such a great reminder for me, that, that quote that reminds us of the power of prayer, that prayer is that slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence, and that's our God. And that's the role of prayer. That's the privilege of prayer. That's the power of prayer. And I just want to encourage you as we, as we start this week to accept Jesus' invitation to go deeper. And prayer, again, it's not some magic bullet, but it is a key part of what it takes for us to find that deeper place, to seek him, to groan before him, to cry out before him, to see him move. Let's go back to verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God heard their groaning. They were vocalizing their pain. That word in the original Hebrew is describing someone who's in such distress that they struggle to be able to articulate really what they're, what they're experiencing, what they're really feeling. And they're not able to, 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 to just speak the, the specifics of their pain, and so they groan Scripture is saying. It's one of those, that groaning is what happens when we turn to someone and we hear them groaning and we ask the question, well, what's wrong with you? It's just that, that guttural, that, that, that thing that comes out of us as a response to the pain deep within. And so that's what they're doing. They're, they're groaning before the Lord. We would be hard-pressed in our culture to fully understand what they were going through as slaves in their captivity and all the pain and all the suffering that was associated with that bondage in their lives. And even, but even though we can't maybe understand totally what they were going through, we know our own pain. We know our own moments in our own lives that cause us to groan, to cry out for help from our bondage, freedom from the bondage that we are in. And so they, they groan. And the thing that we see as we look at this text and God heard their groaning. We think about conversations with God. That It's important for us to understand that God hears 
He hears our groaning. He understands and he hears our prayers uh, and our groanings. He hears those things, even in those moments that we can't fully be, speak it or articulate it or say it, that God understands. Even though our prayers not, may not be well thought out and, and we may not, it might not be a moment where if someone were to hear us praying, they would think, wow, that person, I, can't, I, I could never have such a flowery, wonderful, articulate prayer life. I could never do that myself. That's not what we see in this passage. What we see in this passage is just a basic crying out for help. thing that's so comforting is that even when we don't do such a good job with all of our words, that God understands and that God hears us. And God wasn't moved, we see in this passage, by the length of their prayer. God wasn't moved by them following some formula of prayer, but God heard their prayer. And again, that, that's an encouragement to us that God hears our groaning. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. God listens to his children. He wants us to talk to him. And even when our words fail us, he knows what's going on. He knows our cries. He knows our groanings. And he does not turn an ear away. He has his ear turned towards us. He hears us. Go back to that 24th verse. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God remembers. God remembers the covenant. And as we think about that, the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. And we have the New Covenant. We're under this New Covenant. We are covenant people. They were a covenant people. We are a covenant people. And a covenant is a relationship that we have with God. And in that relationship, God establishes it on the basis of promises. That he gives us promises that he's going to keep as we remain faithful to him. He's going to do certain things. And God had made some wonderful promises to these people that are in captivity. They're in slavery. He had made promises to the, the ancestor, to their great, 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 how many greats there are between present day then and the original. Abraham was the original. And God told Abraham way back in Genesis 12, he told him that you're going to be the father of a great nation. And we see that in this moment that, that God was beginning to work some of those things out. And they had become this great people over the last 400 years in Egypt. They had become a great people. Do you remember the United States, different times in our history when there was some, there was some crisis? How those times of crisis brought us together as a people? Whether that was... Uh, World War, whether that was 9-11, where we came together and we, we think about all the, the negative associated with the slavery, but, but it certainly galvanized them together as a group, as God's people, as they were relying on each other and relying on him. And we see them in those moments crying out to God, groaning. It says that they remembered, God remembered the covenant. And we have those, those times, those times of groaning in our own lives that are brought on by other things. And in this moment, they're different than what they experienced, but we have those same moments. And as they cry out, as they groan before God, God remembers his covenant. They had started out as just a small family. If you remember the story where Joseph, there was a 
Uh, he had been sold into slavery, and so he ends up in Egypt, and he uh, ascends to the rank of the second most powerful person in, in Egypt. And so he's able to bring his family that was still back in Israel, Jacob, his father, and his multiple bunch of brothers and their wives and all of their children. He's eventually able to bring them back because there's a, a famine in the land, and he brings them back where there's food in Egypt. And that's how they got to Egypt to begin with. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 46, it describes that they come to Egypt with a total of 70 people. And that's, that's him and his brothers and his father and, and all their wives and all of their kids. There's 70 of them all together. And God had told their ancestors, because Abraham had Isaac and Isaac had Jacob. And in each generation, God had reiterated the promises, the covenant that he had made to them. He told, again, Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. He had begun to do that. That you're going to be fruitful. That you're going to multiply. That you're going to be a great nation. In fact, he takes him out and he says, I want you to look at the stars in the sky. And as many stars in the sky, you can't count them all. And that's going to be your descendants. You're going to be able to count them all. And that's what God's, God's keeping those promises. And that they would be a great nation and they would eventually be a blessing to the entire world. And so they had gone from 70 now over this course of the last 400 years. Now they're this great people and together they're crying out and it says that God remembers. He remembers, Scripture says, his covenant. He remembers his promises. And when you go back to the Greek, it's not, that, it's not implying that he had forgotten. But it's saying that he's recalling in the, in the original language in the Hebrew, it's a word that refers often to recalling something, but it motivates you to do something about it. There's an activity associated with it. And so that's the, what that word means. It's a, it's a memory that prompts an action. And so this memory prompts an action on God's behalf. He remembers his promises. Hebrews 10 verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Friends, I don't know what you're going through, but our God is a faithful God. That we have a God that keeps his promises. That in their groaning, in their prayer, in their crying out to God, God is prompted to action. The prayer is that slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence, and he frees them eventually. He leads them into the promised land. And in the same way, I would just encourage us that we also are a covenant people. And God has made promises to us that we can experience as we respond by faith. We can experience forgiveness. We can experience the empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can, we can experience a peace that passes understanding as we go through the struggles of this life. We can experience a day when Christ returns to take us to be with him. Those are, those are promises that are part of the covenant, the relationship that we have with God. There's something else that we see. Look at that next verse. Verse 25, and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So not only does God hear their groaning, not only does he hear their cries, not only does he remember his covenant to keep his covenant or his promises with them, but it says that God saw his people, that he understands, that he, that he, there's, he perceives what's going on in them. It, that, it's, a, it's such a powerful little two-word little translation, God saw. And to be encouraged as we think about conversations with God as we talk to God, that God God sees us, that God sees his people. And he saw his people Israel, the scripture says. And that these are the people that he's in covenant with, that he has promises that he's going to keep, that he's given to them as their faithfulness relationship with him. Again, if we have put our faith in Christ and we are friends of God, that we are 
part of his family, that we are his children, and he sees us. In our culture, time to time, people talk about being seen. What's it mean when someone says, they see me? I've been seen. It's referring to this, to someone who really understands what's going on in another person's life. They see me. They empathize with me. They, they know me. We, we get on social media and we post something, a picture or a experience or whatever, and then people like it and they follow it. And we have this as we go back and we see that people see. That someone that we know, that someone that we care about, that someone that we love, they saw that event in our lives. And there's something positive that happens in that moment, some dopamine rush or whatever it is, that, that in that moment we know that someone saw that moment. And that's in our culture, but we're wired with this, with this love for people to see us. God created us that way. And to understand today that we have a God that sees us. In the midst of all the struggle and the, and, and the pain in our lives at times, in the midst of all this going on, the craziness, to know and understand deeply that there is a God, the creator of this universe, that sees us. He can go back to what first Peter said. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. So yes, he hears us, but also, as, as it's said here in this passage, he sees us. I remember as a kid, I wasn't very good at basketball, but as a little kid I played, played basketball or baseball or whatever, whatever the sport was. And, and when you're a little kid, when you, when you do something that you think is really good, what do, you, what do you do? What's the natural thing as a kid? What do you do? You, you always look over and where's mom? Where's dad? Hey, hey, mom, dad, did you see it when I got that hit? Did you see it when I made that basket? Did you see that free throw? Did you see that whatever, that moment? We want to know that someone sees us. There's power in being known and seen and to know that God sees us. The privilege and the power of prayer. Matthew Jesus, Jesus talks to us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He sees. He sees what you need on the outside. He sees what you need on the inside. He knows you. He sees you. What encouragement that God sees us. And we can trust that, that our God sees us, understands us, and knows what we need and wants to answer those prayers. There's one final thing that I want to make sure that we get in this passage. Look at verse 25 again. And God saw the people of Israel. And then this little phrase. And God knew. They'd grown before the Lord. They'd cried out before the Lord. God remembered his covenant. He heard their cry. He saw them. And then what does he say? This powerful truth. Again, these little phrases have so much truth. God knew. God knows what I don't know. God has insider information that I don't have. 
that there is a God that, that knows the past and knows the present and knows my future, knows what's best for me. He knows. But we live our lives like we know better than God does. And prayer is that space where we can be reminded of who we are in, in comparison to who God is. And, and it's very different. But God knows. Again, even though we act in our lives like we know better. Our world, our culture acts like it knows better. That it knows better when it comes to moral issues, whether it's abortion or homosexuality or marriage or other aspects of sexual ethics or judgment or justice or all, all any number of things. We live our lives, our culture lives its life like they know better than God does. There's powerful truth in understanding that God knows. That our sense of right and wrong is not more finely tuned than God. God knows And God knows us, and he knows our pain, and he knows our struggle. And he knew the injustice, he saw the injustice that that his people were experiencing at the hands of the Egyptians. He saw that, he knew that. And he, in his time, was going to make all that right. Do you ever struggle with things not being fair in this world, in this life? Wondering, you know, God, and we talked about this last week, God, why do... Bad things happen to good people and good things seem to happen to bad people. Or, you know, why, 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 why? Can we trust that God knows, that God sees it? If you look at this story, God sends Moses and he interacts with Pharaoh. And even in those interactions, he gives them chance after chance after chance to make things right, to release his people. And they choose not to. And God made things right. And you go back and you can look at the plagues and you can look at the Red Sea incident. You can look at all that and you can see that God knows and God saw and God made it right. And that's the way it will be with us. Translators have tried to help us understand what God knew. Uh, The NLT, if you've got the NLT, let me just read how the NLT translates this passage. I think they took some liberties. They've added a little bit to it. It's not exactly what the, what the original language says, but it says this. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. I think they kind of looked and saw the rest of the story and then kind of went back and kind of stuck that in there. It was time to act. And it's not that it's not accurate. God did know that it was time to act. For 400 years, they'd been in slavery, and now was the time. And they were crying, and they were groaning before the Lord, and they were ready. They were ready to follow him, for the most part, they do. And they follow him to the promised land. They get off a little bit, but generally, they're, they're following. And God sets a series of events into motion that would culminate in his people being freed from slavery. And so what does God know as we think about these conversations God knows the right time. And we can trust that. In those moments when we don't get it and we think God should move in a different, different pace, a different time, to trust that God knows the right time. So any 70s music fans that will admit you, you love the 70s music? All right. Okay. Phil. <laughs> I see that hand. Um, uh, Melissa was calling you out. Uh, there's a 70s psychedelic special kind of a song. And if I said earlier, if Pastor Chris were here, uh, he would probably have Chad come up and, and play a little funkadelic something on that. No, stay where you're at, Chad. Um, and he would sing this. But uh, <laughs> Dr. John uh, wrote a song back in the 70s, right place at the wrong time. Here are the words, and I'm going to spare you. I'm not going to sing it. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. 
I've, had, I've, I've said the right thing, but, I'm, but I must have used the wrong line. I took the right road, but I must have took, took a wrong turn. I took a right move, but I made it at the wrong time. And that's us. But that's never been God. God's never done anything at the wrong time. He's never done the right thing at the wrong time. God's timing is absolutely perfect. And can we trust that? As we cry out to God, as we groan before the Lord, can we trust that God's timing is perfect? Matthew chapter 7, verse uh, 9 through 11, of which of you, if a son asks him for a bread, will give him stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who's in heaven, give you good things Give good things to those who ask him. And God wants to be in the position to answer our prayer in the, in the way that we, we want, but sometimes he knows better. And just like a parent, sometimes we, our kids ask us for things, and we know because we've got more information than they do. We've got more experience than they do. We've been through life a little longer than they do. And so we answer it, but in a little different way than they think or in the timing that they think. But we do that because we love them, and that's our God. And can we, in those moments that we don't get it and we don't understand and we're struggling like they were, can we trust God's timing? And just to be honest, there will be times that we can look back and we can say, and we've said those things before, that, yeah, I look back on my life and I prayed to God, I asked for something, and I can see why he didn't answer in the time frame or in the way that I wished that he would have. And then honestly... There are times, and some of you have stories, where you looked back, and you look back, and you still don't understand. And I would invite you to that deeper place where you trust God even when you don't understand. That's the deeper place. As James says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Friends, he is, he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And I just want to invite you to trust him. To walk into that deeper place where you trust him. Even when you don't understand and even when you don't know. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up. And we're going to sing a final song. And I just want to just conclude with a challenge as we think about prayer, conversations with God. Try to apply what we've talked about today. The good news is... Um, and here's my challenge, would be to just begin to try to have a daily time of prayer. And the really neat thing I think that we can learn from this passage is that length is not the key. Following a certain pattern is not the key. Those things can be great, and, and you, know, you can learn some things from, from all of that. But can we just start off by just striving to be real and genuine and honest before the Lord, authentic before the Lord, Lord, cry out before the Lord, and commit not, it doesn't have to be some length of time, but just as regular, consistent, daily time with the Lord. As you seek, as we seek together as a church, those deeper places with him. Uh, a helpful little side note tip that has been helpful to me in my own prayer life that I've started doing is to pray the Psalms. Uh, I shared this with the staff, but a psalm, there's 150 Psalms. And so if you take a Psalm, whatever day of the month it is, so today's the 8th. And if you look at the eighth psalm, and some psalms are longer than others, I get that, and so you might not be able to pray the whole psalm, but just to use those phrases in the, the psalmist and to use those as a, as a place to, to help you to say some things to God. 
to articulate, whether that's praise to God, and you can just say that as your praise to God, or uh, some struggle that the psalmist is going through, and, and you can just help those words to be your words of, of your struggle with God. Um, so just a little tip to pray the psalms. And the last thing, part of the challenge is I would encourage us to come back next Saturday night, this coming Saturday night at six o'clock in this room. And let's pray together. And let's worship together. Let's seek God's face together. And to see maybe that could be a part of what begins to lead us into that deeper end of the pool. Heavenly Father, God, today we've got a lot to learn about prayer. And I don't think there's anybody here probably, I know I'm not an expert, but God, I know, and I need to be reminded occasionally, and I know we all do, about what a privilege it is, the power that we find in it, the privilege of being able to connect with you, the living God. Thank you, God, for this privilege. Help us not to, not to, not to forget what a privilege it is. And thank you, God, for just a reminder as we look to this story, as we groan, as we cry out to you. It's not about the words, God, but are we real? Are we authentic before you, God? And to know, God, that you care, that you hear, that you answer, God. And we just trust your timing and just help us, God, to, to take those steps into that deeper place. And now as we sing this final song, I pray that you would use these words to help us to articulate even this song, to articulate our praise and our worship back to you, a key part of what prayer is. And God, I pray your spirit would rest here. You would meet us here. You would do work in us here. And we pray in Jesus' name.